0: Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. It's interesting you said the thing about, well, let's talk about rich people. And everybody can kind of figure out some way to say, well, I'm not rich. You can always point to somebody has got more than you've got. I have oftentimes from this pulpit pointed out that from a historical perspective, pretty much anyone living in the United States of America would be in the top one percentile of human wealth. You may not think of yourself in that way, but This is the reason that I've often said that the biggest sin that American society is dealing with, though we see lust and all sorts of horrible things going out there in society, all sorts of sexual sins and impropriety, maybe we think about that as a rampant, wicked world that we're living in, but probably the most prominent sin we're all dealing with is covetousness, and it's one that we're all far too familiar with. We're so comfortable with it that we don't even recognize it as sin, as often as not. So this thing is mentioned here, and it's easy to say, well, I'm not, I can't be covetous because I'm not one of the rich people. I'm not Elon Musk or you know, one of these types of characters. But it really kind of points a finger at all of us when you start talking about wealth. And this issue of money, that's mixed into the context of the declaration I want to make. We are living in the time... Of false prophets, you ever thought about it that way now we oftentimes hear people say, "We live in the Gospel era, right That sounds good. The good news era, huh I want to live in the Gospel era. That sounds good. Well, we live in the new testament era well that 's certainly true, very true. Those are very positive things. We also live in the time of false prophets that is spoken about in the Bible, and it is far more prominent in its expression in your society, and in this world, than we tend to realize. You can drive around all over America, particularly in the South, and you can see all sorts of religious activities going on under the rubric of Christianity, and much of it is under the domain of false prophets. I'm going to try to explain that to you today. And I want to start in Isaiah chapter 8 and about verse 19. And this is a time when Israel is kind of wayward and they've got some impending judgment coming down on them. Isaiah is talking to them. And chapter 8 and verse 19 he says, And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits and unto wizards that peep and that mutter, Should not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead? To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So they're going through a difficult time here. People are worried about present circumstances. They have forsaken God in many respects. And they are looking to a host of other people, pretty much anyone who will tell me something other than what God would have to say. That's who we want to listen to. And they're listening to false prophets is what's going on in that time. It's a woeful state. If you go back just a couple of pages and look at Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20, he's talking about all the woes that are upon Israel at this time. And here's one of them. Now, this is talking about Israel. And I'm not going to say this is a prophecy of the United States of America. It is not. However, Paul did say those things that were written aforetime were written for your learning. It applies to your present circumstances, nevertheless. Isaiah says this, woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. Does that sound remotely familiar to what's going on in our society today? Any one of us could identify a half dozen top of mind, top of the news cycle topics where people are Openly saying something that is good is evil and something that is evil is good. That is precisely the same circumstance that we're living in. They put darkness for light and light for darkness. That put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Their circumstances are very similar to ours right now. Things that are manifestly evil are being promoted as good. And the opposition of those things is regarded as evil. That's the circumstance we're living in. Isaiah back in chapter 8, continuing on after he says, uh, There's no light in them if they're not speaking according to God's word, these false prophets. And they shall pass through it hardly bestead and hungry, and it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God. And look upward and they shall look unto the earth and behold trouble and darkness and dimness of anguish and they shall be driven into darkness. Now that sounds pretty bad. But that's the way of following false prophets. Forsaking the word of God that says good is good and evil is evil and flipping the script and saying good is evil and evil is good. It does not end well. That is the same sort of circumstance that we're living in right now. So I've been preaching through 2 Peter, and I'm going to pick that up in chapter 2 now, which is where we ended off last time. And I'm going to try to talk about false prophets. And in the time I have left, I'm going to try to hit a number of points here. And I'll give them to you. I don't know if I hit them all. This might be a two-parter. First, I want to talk about the existence of false prophets, because I fear that we are not as aware of their existence as we should be. A precursor to that is just to say there's a lot more of them than you think. I'll try to prove that point to you. The existence of false prophets, the doctrine of false prophets, the methods of false prophets, the fruit or the damage that false prophets create, the effectiveness of false prophets. Everything about that one? False prophets are effective, at least for a season. We'll look at that. The motivation of false prophets, and we'll close with the limitations of false prophets. There's things false prophets are able to do in this world, but there's things they're not able to do in this world. And it's important that we know that. Let's start with the existence of false prophets and that's really in our primary text here, 2nd Peter chapter 2 and verse 1. But there were false prophets also among the people. We just hit that, did we not? That was Isaiah. They're going and trying to find anybody who'll tell them anything, usually something that makes them feel good in the here and now but doesn't tell them the things that God would tell them, that would correct them and rebuke them and tell them they need to change and repent and and follow God. There were false prophets among the people, even as there shall be false prophets among you. Now that is a New Testament passage. That is talking to the church. It addresses us in the here and now. That is the basis upon which I have said we are living in the time of false prophets. We're supposed to be an assembly of hard shalls here. That's a hard shall verse. You've got to believe that one as strong as you believe Matthew one twenty one. There shall be false prophets, false teachers among you. Now, this is just an ironclad certainty. Very important that we recognize it and not shy away from it. Now, having established that they exist, let's talk a little bit about what they're going to do and what their doctrine is. Who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. So let me summarize that for you. What they teach is not good. It's not good for you, and it's not good for them. There's an intriguing statement made here about the Lord that bought them. And I'm not going to explore that in this sermon, because that's kind of a rabbit trail. But maybe I'll follow up with an article on the blog here in the coming days to make some statements about that. It's an intriguing statement and one that I think has some interesting explanations to it. But I, I want to leave that alone for now and just accept the fact that these people, these false prophets, are going to bring damning heresies, damnable heresies, denying the Lord, and they're going to bring themselves swift destruction. So important that we recognize. This is stuff that goes on in our world. In the New Testament era, we're surrounded by this as kind of our context. The Lord Jesus Christ talked about this, and we'll get to that in just a minute. The second thing I want to cover is what is the doctrine that they preach? So we know that they exist. They shall be among you. We're going to all affirm that. Let's try to identify them. How can we identify these people? Let's look at the doctrine they teach. Galatians chapter 1, 1, is a good place to go to sustain this idea of the sort of doctrine that creeps into the church as a result of false prophets. It happened at the churches of Galatia. By the way, that carries with it a very important corollary. If this happened in the churches of Galatia, as is codified in the Bible, it happens in Old Baptist churches, right? Right? So the point I'm trying to make here is it's easy sometimes to relegate it to, okay, these bad things happen. That happens in some other denomination. That's what those so-and-sos over there are off into. Well, some of them are, by the way. I'm not going to shy away from that. But this happened in the church of Galatia. That was founded by the Apostle Paul. This is a New Testament church. These things crop up in the church. So wherever you're setting the, the, the meter on, well, this is the Lord's New Testament church and this is not, I'm saying it crops up all over the place and it could crop up right here. So we have to be on guard for it. And it says this, Paul says this, I marvel, verse 6, that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. There's two things in view there. One is the gospel, which is known as the grace of Christ. That's what we preach. You are saved entirely by what God did and not by anything that you ever did, period, in the story. That is the grace of Christ. You say, well, I, I did some good things. I got baptized. I believed. I did all this stuff. I, I tried to live right. What I, that's great. That's fine. You should do those things. However, they are ever and only an ex post facto evidence of saving grace already imparted to a child of God that they got by the pure grace of God and they didn't do nothing to acquire it. There's two things set up here in contrast. One is God does it all, the grace of Christ. You're saved by God's grace alone, period, end of story. And the other one is another gospel. Now, the word gospel is plastered all over Southern society. You'll see it everywhere on billboards and church ads and all this sort of stuff to such a degree that you might think we're living in this great cloud of gospel truth. But much of what is preached under the rubric of gospel is another gospel. Amen. That's That's not a pleasant truth, but it is true nevertheless. And I say that because what many in Christendom are teaching is another gospel because it takes the form of, yeah, Jesus did a lot of stuff. Jesus is great. He's just not great enough to get the job done unless you do something to ratify his work. Jesus didn't send a bill to Congress and get it approved, and then you're sitting there like the president, and you're going to decide whether or not you're going to veto it. It does not work that way. Jesus got the job done for his people. That's all there is to it. And any form of Christianity that is appending a list of to-dos into the realm of eternal salvation is preaching another gospel. That has massive ramifications on how you walk out into this world and begin to assess what's going on in this world as Christianity. Some of them are very disturbing. I'll leave you to work that out in your own minds and and whatnot, but that's just the truth, which is not another. So it's not as if, well, you got your gospel, we got our gospel, and there's all these gospel. everybody's got their path. It's not an Oprah Winfrey, many paths to Jesus arrangement here. It's not another. So Paul says it's another gospel, yet it's not another. In other words, it's not the gospel. It takes the name of gospel, It perverts and twists the message of the gospel. And it says this, there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. That's what men do. They pervert things. We're a bunch of perverts. We're fallen, depraved people and we'll mess up anything if you give us sufficient time to meddle around with it. So we have done with the gospel in much of Christendom today. Paul goes on to say, but though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be a curse. In other words, even if I lose my mind and come in here and start telling you something different, you shouldn't believe that. You should believe what I'm telling you now about the grace of Christ. He calls uh, a curse is anathema. You should just be completely out of here with that stuff, right? That's the idea that's in mind. So the primary way that false prophets influence the world and the church. There's many, many other ways that they influence the church to to deny a host of other doctrines. But we're really talking about what's in the core of the Christian faith. If you attack the core, then all these other ancillary things, they're going to go falling by the wayside as well. If you can get the core messed up, it's like if you've ever known someone in your family that started losing their mind, they have all sorts of other problems, right? It causes all kinds of problems. If you attack the core then all sorts of other things start to fall apart. This is where false prophets operate. They operate at the core, and what they do is they append things to the list of requirements for eternal salvation. That's the primary thing they try to do. When that list of things that must be done was entirely accomplished by God. okay? So that's the doctrine of the false prophets. It's not grace. And by the way, Paul regards it as a very serious matter. It is a very serious matter. What are their methods? Well, look at Matthew chapter 7. This is uh, maybe one of the most famous passages in this respect from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Jesus says the same thing. Beware of false prophets. Peter, who we were reading before, is the person Jesus said, feed my sheep and feed my lambs to, right? And I've often referred to Peter's epistles as sheep food. If you're one of God's sheep, here's some sheep food. We know it's sheep food. Jesus told Peter to feed the sheep. He wrote some books, and that's the sheep food, right? We know that. And here we find, oh, Peter's telling what Jesus told him. He's teaching the same thing. He's serving up the same food. Beware of false prophets. Jesus did not issue idle statements like that. He's, I've said this before. Some people, I think, take these passages and they say, you know, beware of false prophets. Well, you might run into one every once in a while. It's like an albino Bigfoot. You know, every once in a while you might be, just see one. And uh, if you know, there's one right there. There's a false prophet. I saw one. He's not telling you that for something like that. He's telling you that because they're literally all around you. This has massive application in how you approach and address the Christian world. Because they're literally all around us. Which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Well, he seemed like a very nice guy. There's any number of people who seem very nice, who are brokering in the realm of Christianity... And they, they put on a very good appearance, and yet inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. It goes on to say, do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, a good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire, wherefore? By their fruits, ye shall know them. That is talking about the fruit of the ministry of a false prophet. Important to know that. You're going to see that played out in time. There may be a season where everything seems like it's going fantastically, but you're going to, you're going to see some bad fruit in that. And primarily, the bad fruit that's initially created by false prophets is in proselytizing innumerable people, On the false notion that Jesus didn't really get the job done, and convincing them that the things they made them do was what was instrumental in getting them over the hump and getting into eternal salvation. That's the primary fruit, but then it has all sorts of secondary fruits that grow beyond that. I say a cautionary word about this because I mention it every time I hit this text. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Almost every time I hear that verse invoked by anyone, it is invoked as if to say, I looked at this person's life and I'm able to determine where their eternal destiny is going to be. I looked at the fruit of his life and I was able to say, well, that person's going straight to hell. That is how I hear that, well, let's, this person did well, by their fruits you shall know them. As if this verse is teaching that you look upon the heart of another man in the way that God looks upon the heart. And that by being a Christian, you're able to absolutely ascertain whether or not someone is one of God's elect, or whether or not they are regenerate or in possession of eternal life. That is nonsense. That is nonsense. That is not what that verse is teaching at all. If you've ever used it in that respect, you have misused it. And we should never be using it in that way. That is not what it means. It's talking about ministry of false prophets and how you can identify them. You'll see what they're doing, and if you know they're not teaching grace and they're proselytizing all sorts of people on something that's not grace, there's the fruit. Those are the things you see. It's not talking about you've got some kind of ability as a Christian to be able to know where someone's going to spend eternity because you saw that they didn't seem to be living up to some standard you had. We should never use it in that way. It's often misused in that way, and I just want to call that out. Their methods are deception they deceive. They come in, they put on a good front and a good show, but there is an evil motivation that lies underneath it. Honestly, people step in the realm of religion all too often, and it's as though they check their minds at the door. The kind of foolishness they would never accept in the context of their own business, their own work, their own school, their own family, They will let some charlatan come in, and they just check their brains at the door, and they will just assume all the best things about this person. And so they get fleeced. The sheep get fleeced. Don't check your brain at the door. That's some nonsense. That is total nonsense. The Christian religion doesn't say, check your brain at the door, we're going to come in here and feel some religion today. Well, I hope you feel something, but the Christianity I'm talking about is about thinking about something. It's about understanding what God says and understanding how it applies to your life. And one of the ways it applies is your ability to see things more clearly than you would otherwise see them. They operate by deception. And we see that here. Let me talk about the fruit So I mentioned a little bit that one of the fruits you're going to see of these ministries is they're going to be teaching huge quantities of people that they had to improve upon Jesus' work to get themselves into heaven. A more blasphemous notion, it is impossible to invent. But saying that accurately characterizes the doctrine of much in Christianity. And we need to see it as such. That's one of the things, but there's damage. And that damage, if we go back over to Galatians... You'll see Paul talking about it a little later in that same passage we were looking at. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 4. And that because false brethren, unawares, brought in who came in privily to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. You see... If you're living under the delusion of a false gospel, a Jesus plus something else equals salvation gospel, you are under the bondage of whatever that plus something else creates in your life. You're also under the bondage of not fully recognizing what Christ accomplished. One of the key questions that I would say separates the Old Baptist from many in Christendom, if not all, is the question what did Jesus Christ accomplish? If you get razor sharp on getting people to answer that question, there's only two things you can come up with. Either Jesus Christ accomplished the salvation of his people, which is what we're here to say yea and amen to and to declare every Sunday. Or you say, no, he made it possible to be saved, provided other things are done. This religion that promotes that is what I've often called a super denomination, I call it possibilitarianism. Most Christians that you encounter, if they believe the doctrine declared by their churches, are possibilitarians. They may say I'm a Presbyterian or a Methodist, or they may have all sorts of names that they attach to it. They may say they're Baptists. But the reality of their doctrine is that they are possibilitarians. We promote the gospel that Jesus Christ made it possible. That is another gospel. The gospel is the grace of Christ. Christ accomplished the salvation of his people. So it places people under the bondage of works. So that's really part of the fruit or the damage. Here's something I want to make sure we're not misunderstood on this. You can be a possibilitarian and you can still end up in heaven. You say, well, how's that? Aren't you telling me my religion is wrong? Yep, I'm telling you that. You know who else's religion was wrong? The good Samaritan. Samaritans have a messed up religion. You read through the Bible, you're going to find, well, they took Judaism and they took all these Assyrian ideas, they built a new mountain and a new worship service and all this sort of stuff, and we're doing all these things, and Jesus is like, there's a guy with the love of God in his heart. I'm telling you, the gospel is so strong and so good of the accomplished work, finished work of Jesus Christ, that it's going to deliver people to heaven who never actually understand that in this lifetime. Some of those people are possibilitarians. And The purpose of the New Testament church is to uphold the gospel. It's to instruct people in the truth and to take them out of the bondage of thinking, did I do the right things? Now, if you get involved in a possibilitarian assembly and they've told you A, B, and C must be done, you've done A, B, and C, and then your friend across the road says, well, no, 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 wait a minute. I'm in a different possibilitarian assembly. B, C, and D is good, but you've got to do E, and you really don't have to do A. Wait a minute. Am I sure I got this right? They got a different checklist. If I'm wrong, I'm probably going to hell, I guess. If they're wrong, they're going to hell. I don't want to talk about it, so let's just leave it alone. The gospel, properly understood, will comfort both of those people. Because it's going to say, there's a list. There's a list. I agree with you, there's a list. Jesus Christ is responsible for the list. Okay? Okay? He chose a people. He died for them. He's going to deliver them to eternal glory. And it is a blessed truth to know and understand that. It will deliver you from bondage. The bondage that religion will heap upon you about here's all the hoops you got to jump through. Keep jumping through the hoop. And then once they've got you to jump through the hoops, they'll start, well, were you sincere when you jumped through that second hoop? Wait a minute now. you got to be sincere when you do it. You can be in a perpetual state of questioning whether or not you have managed properly a list of to-dos that is not even on your plate to begin with. That's the bondage. That's the fruit of false prophets. We said there are many of them, and they're out there. Peter taught it. Jesus taught it. He wasn't issuing an idle command. There are many people you know, Christian people, who are under this form of bondage because, honestly, they haven't heard the gospel. They've heard another gospel. Well, there's a better truth than that, which is that Jesus got the job done. So that's the fruit or the damage created by the false prophets. The effectiveness. Let's go back to Peter. Checking up in verse 2 here. And many. Many. Not a few. It's not an albino chupacabra. It's not a rare beastie. You're only occasionally going to see Many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom the truth shall be evil spoken of. Many people are caught up in this. Don't kid yourself to think otherwise. They're effective. They're very effective. I think about this from a marketing perspective. I work for a company that uses data to promote products to people in, uh, in marketing. And simple principles of marketing are that if you had an idea that was appealing to two people... And another idea that was only appealing to one person, which one would you want to use to promote your product? I mean, if you're trying to sell something, you say, well, use that first idea. It appeals to way more people, right? One of the problems that crops up, we're sort of at a disadvantage in a sense in sending the message out there because another gospel appeals to every man on some level. Every man has an old man and a carnal mind that is willing to say, yeah, I want to think of this as being a meritorious thing, that I have made myself right with God. I have done the atonement, not Christ. I've done what was necessary to make God pleased with me. That has the advantage. That's a false message. That's another gospel. But it has the advantage of appealing to every man on some level because we all maintain a carnal mind. Yet the spiritual mind is possessed by fewer than that. I don't know how many fewer but it's fewer and even those who have the spiritual mind to accept the true gospel and and follow the truth and understand the truth even those people are battling with their own carnal mind in the midst of all of that so that true gospel if you will kind of has some disadvantages if you were looking at it from a marketing perspective however it is a spiritual truth God's people have the ability to accept it and we are to declare it irrespective of of its marketability. That makes sense. It's an effective message. In addition to that, it has a motivation behind it. And this is I think pretty easy to see if you just step back and are willing to uh, to look at it. We see it in verse 3. One other thing in verse 2, it says by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. There's crazy stuff done under the rubric of Christianity by false prophets and it causes legitimate contempt to be heaped upon the name of Christianity. You see what I'm saying? If you have a false prophet out there that's saying, I'm a Christian, and I'm doing this, and then he does some crazy thing and gets brought up in the news over it and, or whatever, this sort of thing, people say, well, those Christians are a bunch of terrible hypocrites. Look at what this person was doing, Right? So they sully the name of Christianity by promoting false gospels and all the instability that, that breeds underneath it. And that's a, that's a woeful thing too. The motivation though in verse 3, and through covetousness, there's our covetousness, you see that? This is talking about the false prophets are covetous. And through covetousness shall, there's another hard shall for you, they with feigned words make merchandise of you. "...whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not." So it's not going to end well for them, but this is written to you for your admonition, and for your understanding, and for your knowledge. These people are going to make money off of you. That's what it is. It's a money-making deal. (laughs) You know, I've said this many times, and I feel as though people might be inclined to misunderstand it, but I'm going to say it again anyway. There ain't no money... In preaching grace. Now I'm not saying the church does not do a good job of supporting me. The church does a fantastic job of supporting its ministers as far as I'm concerned. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not flying a Gulfstream jet, building a multi-million dollar mansion, driving a Bugatti. But many ministers are. You cannot preach what this church preaches and do any of that from the proceeds you're going to get from it. Because you've got to press people. You've got to force people, twist their arms behind their backs to extract that level of money out of them. And the way you do that, oftentimes, is by promoting a false gospel, putting them in the bondage of thinking, if I don't do a bunch of stuff and follow this religious guru, I'm going to end up in hell. Well, it's pretty high stakes, right? Maybe I ought to give him $10,000. I don't want to end up in hell. It's high stakes. We preach a high-stakes game in the Old Baptist Church, but it has to do with the effectiveness and the fruitfulness of your life in the kingdom of God right now. There's a prosperity gospel out there that teaches you you're going to be healthy and wealthy and wise and beautiful and famous, and, and you're going to be a multimillionaire if you'll just support Joe Schmo out there, the religious charlatan. And I hate it. It deceives many of God's people. However, I do not want to let go of the idea of there being prosperity in the gospel. The gospel is the most prosperous thing you could ever hear to your life. And it's got nothing to do with whether or not you're driving a Bugatti or any of that nonsense. It's got to do with knowing what your Savior has done for you and knowing about a God who loved you with an everlasting love in spite of the fact that he knew every single error you were ever going to commit. That's better than any of the riches of this world. There's a tremendous prosperity in that, and we should not back away from it. Maybe we should reclaim the title of prosperity gospel. Provided you're defining prosperity as it should be defined, that would be a good thing to promote. But the way it's promoted in the world is totally false. Their motivation is money. They're going to make merchandise of you. The word that sits underneath that kind of carries the connotation of an emporium. It's an emporium for fleecing the sheep. The motivation is money. We know some things about money being the root of all evil, right? You dig deep enough on any evil thing, you're going to find some money down there at the bottom of it. And that's what the situation is with the false prophets. Now finally, let me close with this, the limitations. Well, I'm going to give you three. I've kind of already alluded to them. The limitations of the false prophets. Well, here's three. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's a limitation on what the false prophets can accomplish in this world. They can't do anything to overturn that. The covenant whereby we are saved is unalterable. God purposed to save his people from before the foundation of the world. Christ died for them. His death is unassailable. It accomplished its end. It is going to happen whether you like it or not. That's the gospel truth of the matter. Nothing a false prophet could ever declare. No amount of money he could fleece out of one of God's sheep in the emporium of merchandising you is ever going to land anyone in hell for whom Christ died. It just cannot happen. So they can be effective, and they're effective in the ways they can be effective, but they have limitations, and they cannot reduce the number who are ever going to be eternally saved. They just can't. Because God made covenant promises, and they cannot be broken. So they have their limits, and their limits are really restricted to the here and now. They can really confuse, depress And confound the minds of people in this lifetime who don't know the truth. That's where they operate. But there's a second aspect that they're limited on. It's also part of the covenant. And that goes back to Isaiah, and we'll close here. We read Isaiah chapter 8 in the last part of that chapter. But picking up in chapter 9... We find some hopeful words, and I think you'll see in this a prophecy of Christ. Chapter 9, verse 1, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be for such as was in her vexation, when at the first light he afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. These people are going through a rough patch and inclined to follow a bunch of false prophets. But you see nevertheless that there's a light that shines through all of this. And if we skip down to verse 6, we'll pick up and we'll see this. And this will definitely resonate with you as a testimony of our Savior. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Can you imagine? How many of you would raise your hand right now and say, i got problems with the government right now. Our government is a hot mess. It's awful. There's all sorts of horrible things going on with our government. Our nation is in great distress. Guess what? The government's going to be upon his shoulders. We don't see that now, but we're going to see it in fullness at some point. All of this false prophecy stuff is going to be completely rooted out at some point in the future when the government is upon His shoulders. Because right now the government's kind of on our shoulders, isn't it? And we're not doing so good with it. And His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and the increase of His government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth forever. Well, his government is going to increase. And it's going to continue to increase. And at some point on that last day, it's going to completely root out the evil that exists in this world. The government will be resting entirely on God's shoulders in all of its fullness... And we're going to see that manifest. You're not going to have any more false prophets in that day. It's all going to be rooted out. And as that government increases, the false prophets will be done away with. They can never do anything to prevent Christ from saving one of his own, but they can sure make things a lot more difficult and confusing and unpleasant for those who are deceived by them in the here and now. But they're going to be gone. And they'll be gone henceforth and forevermore. And we can take comfort in that and take comfort in the fact that we've heard the gospel and we know what Jesus Christ has accomplished. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony. We don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.